A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Thank you for joining us on A Thoughtful Faith today. My name is Micah Nicolaisen, and I'll be your host. And I am pleased to have with me my friend Michael Barker. Michael, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. I'm I'm excited and honored. <laughs> well, the honor the honor's all on this end, man. Um, <laughs> okay. I've I've actually been really excited for this interview all day. Uh, Michael and I actually chatted on the phone for uh, quite a while last night, and you know, over the past little while since we've started this podcast, um, I've been really surprised and humbled and uh, grateful for the caliber of people that we've had on our podcast. But I've actually been a little bit surprised at a lot of the people we've we've spoken with and interviewed. Uh, very few of them have had a sort of monumental faith crisis or faith transition or um, whatever term you want to use for it. You know, I was uh, discussing this with a group of people on Facebook, and uh, Michael's brother Paul uh, sent me a, a private message indicating that uh, that Michael uh, may have a, an experience or two. That, that may be useful for our listeners. And so um, I was able to reach out to Michael and he has been uh, gracious enough to to be on the podcast. And so I'm really excited to to talk to you, Michael. Mike is a physician's assistant working in orthopedic surgery in a town called uh, Medford, Oregon, which I understand is pretty close to the Oregon, California, uh, northern border there. Other than that, we'll, we're going to get to know Michael pretty well, and so let's kind of dive in there. Michael, tell us what it what it is we need to know about you. Um, so, should I start with my my Mormon credentials? That's yeah, yeah. Tell like, us what your what your street cred is. <laughs> my street cred. All right. Well, um, on my my dad's side of the family, he he wasn't baptized till he was thirteen. Although he comes from um, pioneer stock, his a uh, on his side of the family, his uh, the earliest converts were in, in Glasgow, Scotland, um, and then his mother, my grandma, she was pretty much a Jack Mormon, and uh, married a non-LDS guy. Uh, both of them were alcoholics. Interesting enough, my grandma started one of the first um, AAs for LDS people after she got uh, cleaned up. So um, they, they, uh, my grandmother, my father, and his sister eventually moved to California from Oregon, uh, Roseburg, Oregon, and uh, my father eventually got baptized at age thirteen. So that's my my dad's side of the family. My mom's side is, I think, is a little bit interesting as well. Um, and the, during World War II, the um, uh, the U.S. was having a hard time obtaining rubber, so they so Goodyear sent down a man by the name of John O'Donnell down to Central America to find some rubber uh, tree um, farms, and he was LDS. He went down there. He eventually married a native Guatemalan by the name of Carmen Galvez, and she was later baptized, becoming the first person to be baptized in Central America. Well, Carmen's cousin, one of her cousins, was my abuelita, my my grandmother, and um, 
So, you know, they would talk to Maya Walid about the church, but she really had no interest. She was a pretty devout um, Catholic. Eventually, her two oldest daughters did become members of the of the church and uh, uh, found sponsors and moved to the U.S., moved to the Bay Area. And it didn't come till uh, later in life in Guatemala that she, my, my abuelita was a, a nurse and she was taking care of her cousin Carmen's uh, father, so my abuelita's uh, uncle. And he was there, you know, he was pretty ill, dying. And someone had brought in some flowers that were had, a, apparently they had a very strong scent to them. And so she took them out and um, just out of the room because they were just. I guess pretty really, really strong, like I said, and uh, he he soon died. But during that whole time, he was telling her, you know, if you do anything, uh, you know, please let the missionaries talk to you and to your to your two other daughters, because the two other daughters, one of them was my mother, Heidi, and then her younger sister. Well, he eventually died, and then she had this very powerful experience. Um, anyone that has uh, served a mission in Latin America or anything know that. Um, uh, people in Latin America tend to be a very visionary people, tend to be very – get a lot of answers and dreams. And she had this um, – suddenly she had heard his voice repeating those same words. You know, if you do anything, uh, let the missionaries come and talk to you and, and your daughters. And suddenly she had that same smell of those powerful flowers came to her. So she immediately called the missionaries and she and her two daughters, one of them being my mother, uh, was later uh, – were soon baptized. Soon after that, they found sponsors, and the three of them came up to the U.S., um, settling in the Bay Area uh, near my other two uh, aunts. And so that's 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 my uh, stories there. They uh, and then eventually my my father did marry my my mother, um, but that uh, that ended in divorce when I was about age four to five. By that time. It was me and my brother Paul that you mentioned at the beginning. He's my my full-blooded brother. Um, my mother had custody of us and decided that it'd be a great idea to take us out of the country, which apparently you call kidnapping. Um, t- <laughs> no way! Wow. <laughs> took, took us up Jeez. to Canada with her fisherman husband, way up north. I can't remember exactly where off the top of my head. Well, my father found out how where we were. He talked the elder scorn president into um, flying up to Canada with him to come get us out of the country. So he thought, oh, yeah, sure, let's go for it. And so I, I, I can distinctly remember um, one morning, uh, Bob, that was my mother's new Canadian fisherman husband, uh, leaves the house. Paul and I are sitting in the, standing in the kitchen drinking hot cocoa, uh, wearing Bob's T-shirts as nightgowns. A knock comes on the door. Paul opens it. My dad's there with Brother Graham, the elders corn present, sweeps up Paul. Paul drops his hot glass of cocoa on the ground. They grab me and they run for the, run for the car while my, my uh, mom yells for her husband, Bob. Oh, man. And wow. so we – so needless to say, she um, – Lost custody of us. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is a crazy story. Oh man, it's good, right? I was like, no one's heard that story before, so I thought I'll I'll, I'll tell that one. That's a little. That's a that's a you know really sad story, but I mean it's amazing. So um, she kidnapped you and took you to Canada. That's that's a that's pretty unique, uh, and uh, just such a vivid memory for you. That's crazy. Wow. And so she ends up. Staying, you know, living, staying in Canada, um, starts a, a whole new family, and I saw her once at age fourteen, and I really have had very little contact with her um, mm-hmm. since then. So it's kind of it, it's kind of a loss, you know, a bit. Yeah, that is that's very sad. I'm sorry about that. Wow. 
Um, so my father was a ser- serial marriager. Uh, mar- I'm not sure how you say that, but he married a, another lady later, a Mexican lady. Uh, that lasted, um, I'd say, weeks maybe. She made off with uh, the money and went back to Mexico. <laughs> my dad, that marriage was an old and eventually when I was age nine, my dad married Shireen. Uh, and Shireen's who, when, usually when I speak of my mother, it's usually Shireen because she's who raised me. Um, and it's kind of weird to call her Shireen because I don't call her that. I call her mom. And um, so any anything that's good, kind that I have, that I am, is because of, of, of mom, because of mom Shireen. And so she's been a, a powerful influence for, for good in my in my life. So, so growing up LDS, um, you know, I grew up in uh, San Jose, the East, East San Jose, until I was age thirteen. Um, um, my father, you know, he was kind of a strong patriarch type type guy. Uh, we eventually moved to um, um, the Central Valley, uh, the San Joaquin Valley, in a little town called Manteca. Um, and that's where I spent my teenage years. Uh, some things that kind of, I think, kind of influenced me later in life was my, my father had some kind of crisis of faith um, during my teen years. I'm never clear on, on what, it, what it was. I've never had the chance to ask him because he's, he's dead now. He was hit by a car in Mexico a few years ago. Um, but I remember that really affecting me because he became he became kind of angry a lot, and it became going to church was kind of weird for me and for my brother, and it was it was just kind of you know a little it was awkward, <laughs> you know the whole thing was bizarre. But you know he eventually came back to church, and like I said, I don't understand what the whole the whole uh, reasoning for for what happened there. How, how old were you when that was going on? Probably about age fourteen. I'm not, and I, I venture to guess. You know, my my father, because he grew up in San, he lived in San Jose most of his life. People knew him there. You know, he had been the at the time when the seventies were part of the stake. He had been the the um, the stake mission president. He had been in a bishopric, and then when he moved to a town where no one knew him, he, I guess, he didn't really have any clout. I, I I'm thinking, and I think that might have bothered him. I remember him reading about the uh, Hoffman murders. I'm not sure if that had anything to do with mm. it. You know. Little great price stuff and the and the salamander letters. I I don't I, I don't know. I don't I just don't know. One of the one of the earliest impressions I had, or, or I guess you would say, you know, uh, feeling the Holy Ghost was when I when I was when we we're still in San Jose. Um, I'm not sure whose bright idea this was, but they thought it'd be cool to have some deacons sing in sacrament meeting. Yeah, so so me and two other deacons saying I am a child of God. Well, I was up on the stand and I was farting around, you know, just being a <laughs> just being a dork. It embarrassed my dad a lot because he couldn't see it because he was in the bishopric. And so this is all going on behind him. So people came, you know, came up and told my dad that you know I've been dorking around. And so he came up and said, "Hey, you know, people told me you should." You know, you should go apologize to the bishop. So I, I went to his house. He was a couple of streets down. And I remember apologizing to him. And suddenly and very unexpectedly, this um, emotion of just like this heat in my chest came over me. And 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 at that moment, it, it was something I'd never felt before. But it seems to me that it was some indication saying that what I was doing was the right thing and that God had forgive me for it was a minor error right but it was it was it was a memorable experience um for me you know? obviously a big deal to you at the time yeah 
So I guess that's that's um, the interesting stuff. <laughs> there, I had you know I went to early morning seminary, um, like most kids did that lived outside the Mormon corridor. I en- I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I think we had it at like six in the morning. The high school was just across the street from our church, so we could just truck over there. Uh, I had really great teachers. Uh, senior year, uh, a great great guy that was in my ward who had beautiful daughters that you know everyone wanted to date. They were all. They're, all, they're like really <laughs> good Mormon people, and uh, whenever, whenever he, he used this great tactic, whenever he, he could tell he was losing our attention, he would somehow bring up sex, right? <laughs> nice. <laughs> he knew how to work it, right? He knows what was going to get everyone like paying attention at <laughs> at six in the morning, man. He <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, how would he do that? <laughs> He, he would talk of, uh, I remember one time he was like, yeah, one of the first gifts I got from my wife was a piece of lingerie I made. And also we're like, huh? <laughs> you know, and or he just, he'd somehow bring, I remember that, that particular one was kind of memorable. I don't know why. So it wasn't like related to the lesson or anything. He would just like randomly bring that up, huh? About Mormon or Moroni and all of a sudden, you know, he's losing us and bam, sex comes into the conversation, into the lesson somehow <laughs> nice. it would just yeah it would just it would just suddenly we would all be uh be all uh, all uh paying paying attention a lot <laughs> nice. so that was my growing up experience after that i went to uh, rick's college um um oh but before that kind of a an odd issue with race um so this would have been like 1986 i had a i was i played in band my just my freshman year and i had a guy come up to me and goes hey i heard blacks couldn't have the priesthood for a while why was that i was like i don't know man so i go and ask my dad my dad gave me you know the answer right which was they were less faithful in the pre-existence or they were fence sitters right so i go back and i tell this guy that and he looks at me like what the frick are you talking about, man? That's just bat crazy. I'm thinking I'm, as I'm telling him, I'm like, do I really believe this? This sounds this sounds kind of weird, you know. But and then and then and then I was like, well, okay. So if the blacks couldn't have the priesthood because they were less valiant. Then I guess the reason they got the priesthood was because all those valiant spirits had already been born into black bodies, and you know, so you know they're all born, and so now they could have it. It was just crazy, right? Yeah. Agree that that's just that's just wacky. The mental gymnastics I had to do, and then, um, anyways, I, I go to Rick's, um, and um, uh, while, while I was there, I, I took a Book of Mormon class my freshman year because I was getting ready to go on a mission. And I remember my teacher talking about um, how how a society or people can devolve, you know, and lose the light of Christ or whatnot. And um, and he said, for example, look at the Aborigines. And I thought, what? <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Man, I don't I don't know how that well that sets with me really. And uh well he ended up being a mission presently too. So I'm, I hope I, I I don't know if he ever fixed that one or not. Um so it's kind of kind of funny. Other funny experience at Rick's I had a, a roommate who fell madly in love with this soft girl and uh she wanted nothing to do with him eventually and broke up with him and he just went out, he went seriously he went out of his mind he he sat in his his room all day one day and played over he had the single to that Brian Adams song from um uh from the Robin Hood movie do you remember that crappy song oh yeah 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 i i know which one you're talking about yeah <laughs> 
him out of his room, right? So anyways, it's the next semester he goes back home to Idaho Falls to prepare for his mission. He comes back the next, you know, that the same semester. He's like, hey, I've, I've gone through the temple. I got my garments on. I'm like, so he, I'm, and I'm suspicious. I'm thinking, he's just doing this just to like impress the girl. This is the weird subculture of Mormonism, right? So anyways, he, we let him stay over the night and he's he has his pants on but his shirt off and he's just wearing his garment top. But I don't believe him that it's a garment top. I mean, it's like a standard crew neck and I'd only seen the this, the really scooped ones, right? And I go, and I go up to him. I go, that's not a garment top. It's got that neck. He's like, no, you can get in that way. And I look at him. I look at his chest and his 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 uh, belly button. I go, dude, you don't have the markings. He's like, what are you talking? About? I go, dude, you got ripped off, man. <laughs> well, it was it was during Rick's. Now I, now, I had read the Book of Mormon prior to going to school, but I just read it like I was like, okay, I want my patriarchal blessing, so I'm going to read the Book of Mormon. So I did that, right? But I never really wrestled with it or gave it much more thought than that. It was it was in college my freshman year that I decided, you know, I'm going to pray about this. And I prayed. And you know what? Let's be honest. I got no answer. I didn't. I spoke to my dad about it. I was really kind of distraught about it. But I I didn't feel I got an answer then. And looking back, I, I still don't think I got an answer to that to that prayer. I, and I don't know how common that is um, for people, but I, I felt the book was good. Um, but I didn't get that distinctive answer that had been promised. So that kind of bothered me a little bit. So real real quick, Mike, you uh, shared an experience earlier where you sort of felt, you know, literally a sort of a burning in the bosom when you sort of went to go uh, talk to your, your uh, bishop in your home ward. And did you associate that with the spirit at the time? And like what was sort of your uh, – I know we're sort of backtracking a little bit, but what was sort of your uh, your reaction to that experience? I, I think I associate. I think I. You know, it's been a long time, but I think I associated that with the Holy Ghost and that I was doing the right thing. Okay, so was that sort of a? The, did you have an expectation for that same sort of feeling as you were praying about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon? I think I did, and I and I don't think my expectation was too high. You know, I didn't expect Moroni to show up in my room. Or, right, <laughs> or, or Raphael, whoever that is, right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> nice. You know what I mean? So I, uh, yeah, it, 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 I prayed. It, it didn't come. I, I look back, and my, my father tried to give me some possible answers that, at the time, worked for me. Okay, but I didn't. I didn't feel that something distinct saying, "Yeah, you know, you're good. This is right." But I felt the book was good. And I felt Mormonism was good. I was glad what Mormonism had provided provided me, you know. And I'm sorry. So that w- that experience you just described that was before you left on your mission. That's before I left on my mission. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So what? Was- so how did that make you feel? Like was that uh, was that a problem for you, or did you just kind of move on? Uh, it wasn't a problem for me. No, I just kind of was there, and yeah, I just decided. You know, I still wanted to go on. A, I still wanted to go on a mission. Um, and so I did, you know, gotcha. Um, real quick, you know, one thing that just came to my mind as you were sharing that, uh, experience, and this is uh, actually just something from my own personal experiences. Cause I sort of had a, uh, growing up had a very similar, um, experience when I would pray about the book of Mormon, I would never really get an answer. And I remember at one point sort of, uh, and I think this is pretty common people having this epiphany as they're praying and praying about it where they, uh, they say, well, then I realized that I just, I've, I, I just already knew it was true. Oh yeah. yeah. And, I, I and think so that's what my dad told me. And so I, you know, 
that that's sort of you know I sort of fell back on that a lot of times. Well, maybe I just already know that it's true, and so I'm not going to get a an answer or a witness for something that I already know is true. Um, and I'm not saying that to discredit people who who share that um, experience. I'm not saying that that's not valid, but I know for me that was a good fallback or. <laughs> Uh, or to use a harsh word, a cop out. And so, did, did that ever happen to you? I actually, I think that's exactly what my father told me. Interesting. You kind of, you kind of jarred, jarred a memory. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to. That was maybe directing the witness a little too much. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, you know, keep uh, continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to to interrupt your oh, story. No, 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 no problem, no problem. So I, uh, so I decided I was going to go. Well. It's like, I can't say I decided because I just was always going to go on a mission because that's what Mormons, what Mormon boys do. And I'd lived, you know, a, a, I was good. I, I was a well-behaved uh, Mormon boy, you know. And uh, so I submitted my papers. I got the call. At the time, uh, my my one and only sister, she had just been born. Um, she was kind of like the surprise child, right? So I was, you know, I'm 19. So there's a 19, you know, almost 20 year difference between the two of us. She was in the hospital. She had some heart problems. So I opened up the call there and at the hospital room where my mom still was recovering and I opened it up. And I remember, uh, Dallas, Texas. And I was like, Oh, this sucks, man. <laughs> Seriously. All right. I'm like Dallas, Texas. I mean, how unexotic does that sound? And then it said, you will be learning the, 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 the uh, the discussions in Spanish. I was like, Oh, okay. That it, it redeemed it. Right. Right. <laughs> You wanted right. to go Spanish speaking because of yeah, your heritage. I, yeah, I think I think so. I, I think that was part of it. And you know, growing up, my my father he had served his mission in Mexico, and so even though he was, you know, white as the day is long, which I guess that makes no sense at all. But anyways, you know, he was just <laughs> he was North American, European blood, Scottish blood, right? But he spoke, and Heinz, you know, after my mission, I realized that he spoke incredibly articulate Spanish. It was like so good. It really was. He had like no accent. He remembered all the rules. He never messed up. I mean, it was just beautiful Spanish. So growing up, even though I did not grow up with my biological mother, he would speak, you know, just little phrases to us. And he would call Paul and I his little Lamanites, you know. And so the idea of that many people, the hangups many people have with the Book of Mormon and the dark and loathsome people. For my brothers and I, it was never like that. It was like, yeah, we're Lamanites, you know, and our ancestors built that stuff down there in Chichen Itza. So, you know, what's up, you know? So it wasn't, it wasn't a, for us, it wasn't a, it was a sense of like, yeah, we're cool, you know? Interesting. And, okay. Yeah. So, um, MTC experience, it's kind of interesting. That's where I first learned about all the crazy things Utah Mormons do not to have sex while still having sex. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I got an NTC tell me all this stuff. I'm like, what the freak are you guys talking about? I've never heard this before. You know? It's like welcome <laughs> so, to Provo. Yeah, I'm like I'm so I'm not gonna go into de any details, but I was like, I don't I don't need to hear about this stuff, man. You know, it just I'm like <laughs> So, so that's what stuck out to you out of your MTC experience. Yeah, right. Exactly that, and, <laughs> and just the horrible things they would do to me. I remember one time, I'm using, I'm using the bathroom. I'm sitting down. The guys come and pop the door open so I can't close it because it's hitting the latch the wrong way, and they start throwing wet paper towels at me as I'm doing my stuff. I'm like, dude, you know, I mean, I can't do anything, right? I mean, it's just hor it was just horrible. <laughs> so. You know, that's an age when most other um, American 19 year olds are you know, freshman at college and, you know, engaging in that kind of behavior. So they got to get it out of their system somehow. Right. 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 
And so um, I, I, go, I, I get to Dallas. My first months were just a waste of time. I was I wasn't doing what I should have been doing. I'll just leave it at that. Um, eventually, I got made senior companion on my my first the first transfer, and then I started you know pick up stuff. But I quickly realized that um, that obedience didn't mean more baptisms, and that bothered me, right. That it actually seemed to be the more charismatic you were, <laughs> the more right. baptism, right? Right bothered me and so one of the great regrets i have for my mission and i well first of all i worked my butt off i worked really hard i was kind of i was kind of the jerk guy that would like skip lunch so we could work you know and find a companion's like barker i gotta eat man i'm like okay you're so weak okay we'll eat you know i was you know that i turned into that dude for some reason thinking that somehow the baptism would come and i'm not saying i didn't baptize just didn't baptize like the, the charismatic guys could, you know, that um, that had the nice white straight teeth. So, anyways, so um, uh, and so that kind of started to bother me. And then, um, and then the other thing, I came home, and then my my two brothers, uh, my two brothers have served missions. Paul um, served in Argentina, and then John, he's the he's the youngest brother, who's um, a half. You know, I, I consider him. He's my brother. I don't think about him that way at all. He served in Argentina as well. And speaking of them, I realized, first of all, how much more they enjoyed their mission. And second of all, how much more they re- they really loved the people. They really, really did. And I had this concern that people would join the church because of my amazing charisma, <laughs> right? So I ended up putting this um, – the shield almost between me and the people that I taught because I was so con- you know I was so concerned and it, it really prevented me from deeply truly loving them like I think I should have done and like I think my two brothers did so that's a regret I've I've always I've always carried uh carried from that yeah that's interesting yeah it's sort of hard to connect if you uh I think I think I uh at least uh, certainly in certain periods of my mission probably had a similar attitude and yeah, I wish I had spent less time, um, you know, worrying about stuff like that and worried more about just uh, loving and serving people. So I'm with you there. So I uh, finished up my mission. I had a, I had a great mission present um, for my second, second mission present was really, I really, really liked him. He was a, Kearns was his last name. He was at one time he was the um, uh, what do you call him? The commissioner of higher learning at U- in Utah. Pretty pretty nice guy. Really bright guy. My last interview with him, I, I was a zone leader, and some of the guys go, "Hey, hey, go ask uh, President Kearns what? Ask him. Go ask him what necking is. I'm reading the. I'm reading. <laughs> I'm, reading <laughs> I'm not making this crap up. He goes, the guy goes, I'm reading the miracle forgiveness and President Kimball keeps on talking about necking and I don't know what that means. I was like, all right, dude, I'll, I'll ask him. So I go, I know he, they were talking to him and I go, so listen, President, some of the guys want, want me to ask you what it means to, what necking is. And he just kind of looks at me and smiles. He goes, is it like making out too long? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm sorry. I just, you know, it's, it's not for me. He goes, he pats me on the head. He goes, oh, Elder Barker, you might need to know here in a few months anyways. <laughs> you know, so you kind of had a, kind of a good sense of humor. Nice. Um, so, I'm, uh, so after my mission, I was a plumber for a little while to help pay for school. Went back to Rick's. 
um, that I guess it'd be winter semester. I had this sociology class where this uh, petite brunette girl with blue eyes would always show up a little bit late. I thought she was just, I thought she was so beautiful, but I could never get the courage up to talk to her, right? Because I'm still, still dorky, right? Right after your mission. Yeah, for my mission, right? I'm still like a complete dork. And uh, I remember at the end of class, I held the door open for her and she looks at me, she goes, thank you. And I said, duh. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That was awesome. So anyways... (laughs) Screw that one. <laughs> so, so I, so uh, that summer, I, it was back in the day. Remember, when, I'm not sure if they still do it when guys sold the pest control contracts door to door. Yeah, yeah, I, I did that after my mission. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did that for a summer. Came back, had had pretty good money for a college student. Went back to Rick's again. That same girl is in my anatomy and physiology class, sitting behind me. I'm a little less dorky now. I start talking to her. I ask her out on a date. She says, yeah. So our first date is like um, at Rick's. This guy would like do this haunted forest thing and pay like the Rick's college students jack, you know, under the table. And so our first date was we went out there. She was scaring kids and we had a foil dinner and, and we just hung out. I remember though calling her that day <clears throat> to wanted to pick her up. And her roommate goes, hey, it's Mike on the phone. And she says, Mike who? <laughs> Awesome, right? It's a good sign, yeah. That's good, that's awesome. It's a good sign. So we ended up dating, and I ended up asking her three different times, actually technically two times to marry me. I was going to ask her a, a third time there uh, in the middle, and she's like, Mike, don't ask me. Well, I finally got her on the third time, and we've been married now for, for 16 years. So awesome. Got, t- got two daughters. So it, it worked out dis- despite my uh, my dorkiness. That's really cool. <laughs> so we what's, your, to, uh, what's your wife's name? Kathy. Kathy. Okay, cool. Kathy. Yeah, Kathy. So Kathy wanted to be a dental hygienist. So she applied to a bunch of schools. One of them was Oregon Health Sciences University up in Portland. So we said, hey, if you get into OHSU, we'll go to Portland. So she gets in. So we go to Portland. I never go to BYU Provo. I start going to Portland State University, which is kind of a cool campus right downtown in the middle of Portland. And I also start doing valet parking to help pay for stuff. And uh, it's during that time when I changed my major from physical therapy to physician assistant, I was in this organic chemistry class. You know how you do that stupid thing, you know, what's your major, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's where I first heard about PAs. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting. So I checked it out. I was like, you know, this is cool. This is way cool. And I talked to my wife about it. She's like, yeah, you should pursue it. So I decided uh, decided to uh, to, pers- to uh, pursue that. And then so I ended up getting accepted um, to the physician assistant program at Oregon Health Sciences University and then graduated from there. We moved to Medford. And now this is going to sound funny except to the mountain bikers that might be listening i moved to medford because of the mountain biking i love mountain biking in medford this area down here the 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 climate is it's not as wet as it is up in portland we get all four seasons and it has just totally awesome mountain biking just really really rad mountain biking so we we moved here partially because of that and oh yeah because there's a temple (laughs) be close (laughs) to the temple nice yeah yeah and so I've been here ever since. I've been doing the same job now for – it was 11 years in October uh, when we moved down here to Medford from Portland. My, do- my first daughter was born soon after. She's now – she turned 11 uh, the last day of this month. That's Melina. And then my second daughter was uh, born a few years later. She turns uh, 7 in January, Serena. So Melina and Serena, I have two, two, uh, two awesome. beautiful daughters. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, <laughs> so as a physician's uh, assistant in 
orthopedic surgery, uh-huh. uh, what does that sort of entail on a day-to-day basis? That's a good question. So in the operating room, I'm what they call the first assist, which means I hold the retractors. Um, I, uh, I, I close the wounds you know, with the sutures and stuff like that. If there's any bracing or casting that needs to go on afterwards, I do that. So that's what I, what I do in the operating room. In the office, I see patients. So I'll see patients with, that come in with new complaints. I'll see, I see almost all the post-operative visit people. So, you know, a week or two after surgery, they have to come in, have the sutures out. I come in and check on them and see how their progress is doing, give them the, you know, you know, x-rays, order the x-rays, interpret the x-rays if needed and things like that. And then also with orthopedic surgery, generally speaking, you have to take, uh, you have to be on call with the hospitals, meaning if anything broken shows up to one of the emergency rooms here, we have two hospitals. Or if, or if one of the uh, just local clinics has a, a question uh, uh, regarding a patient they had that's coming with something broken or some other issue, they call and I take all those calls. And so if something is and it shows up in the emergency room that's broken. I'm able to look at the x-rays at home, and I can determine whether or not that's something that can be seen later in the week by me or if it's something I have to go in and take care of immediately, you know, something that just needs to be straightened out or does need to be operated on. If so, I, I admit them to the hospital, get them set up. If it's a trauma, I'm the first one there to take care of, take care of the trauma and, and get them lined up, make sure the x-rays are done, figure out what the plan is, and uh, you know, get them set up for surgery if, they, if needs be or, or pull, on, pull on a bone that needs to be taken taken care of, you know, and wow. so that's, that's kind of what I do. That's know? way it's, cool. That's a, that's a really great career. I like it a lot. Yeah. You get, you get to help people. That's, that's really cool. Not a lot of people I, get to do that. I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. So you could, uh, you could have to abruptly end this interview at any time to go, uh, take care of something. Well, I'm not on call today. So thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good, man. <laughs> cool. So just as, uh, you know, looking back at your story so far, you know, not necessarily the most uh, the most typical LDS background, at least probably uh, <laughs> not a story uh, most people in the Mormon corridor are, uh, have experienced where you get kidnapped by your mother as a child and taken to Canada and dad comes in and, and saves you, takes you back. But it sounds like your, your experience with Mormonism was uh, was pretty normal. I don't know if that's fair to say or not, but um, and it was positive. It, it I liked I liked as a kid. I liked being Mormon. I really did. Hmm. I liked distinctiveness. People knew I was Mormon, you know, so they knew that Barker didn't go drink and Barker didn't swear. I might get a little off colored sometimes, you know, but I was you know I was a good kid, you know. I was yeah, I was good. I was well behaved. Yeah. Cool. So in your adult life, are there any experiences that are that are worth sharing sort of leading up to your faith crisis? Um No, not I don't No, I was No, not that I can think of. There's uh What kind of callings have you have you held over the years? Yeah, when I was in that's a good question. When I was in Portland, I was uh in the young men's and I can't. I think I was, was I a counselor. I can't remember, but I remember teaching the young men's, like the teachers or something. And I remember really liking that a lot. And I like. I remember some of the kids liking me because I. I'm only five five. I'm five five. I, I you know I weigh. I hang out right around one thirty eight. So I'm a small guy. And so the small the small kids that are probably like way taller than me now. They kind of like that. You know, like oh, you know Barker. He's kind of cool and he's short. So I'm okay. <laughs> Made you more approachable, right? <laughs> Apparently. Kind of like a hobbit's approachable, I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so in Medford, I remember teaching Sunday school to like 
teenagers in my fir- in the first ward I was in, and then I got involved with scouts. I like the varsity scout leader, which was a lot of fun. Um, the kids kids liked me, seemed like, and we, you know, and I have fond memories. And every and it, it, I guess it's, it's kind of cool because a lot of those guys are grown up and married, and they'll see me and they, hey Barker, you know, and it's kind of. It makes me feel good, you know, when I see him. And then um, we moved. Uh, <clears throat> we moved and bought a house. And in that ward, I I was in the Elder's Corn presidency with you know some really good people. And it was about then that things started to um, change a little bit for me, not not dramatically. At that time, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it was uh, when it been about two thousand. Had it been two thousand five? Because it was the. Uh, bicentennial i guess of joseph smith's birth and so there's all these different um forums and stuff that were going on and how and old, i remember how old were you at this point okay so two who were in 2000 so that been seven years ago so i've been 32 okay right around 32 i remember picking up a newsweek magazine which i which i kept because i still have it the on the cover of it was joseph smith the joseph smith theophany the first vision and it's a stained glass windows beautiful you know where he's he's kind of down looking up and there's God the Father and God the Son, right? It's it's beautiful and I'm sure there's people that remember that. So I was like, oh, so yeah, let's I remember open. it, yeah. It was really beautiful. So I opened it and I started reading the article and then there starts talking about this symposium where this man, Richard Bushman, gave an address about Joseph and he was a little bit worried about how it would be received by some of the LDS general authorities that were in the audience. And then he goes on to say that, you know, he, he said that they came up to him and said they enjoyed it and you know they were receptive to it, and so then and this guy Richard Bushman had written this book called Rough Stone Rolling. I was like, well, that sounds this sounds interesting to me, right? Because my brother Paul had a few years ago had bought me a, a little biography by Truman Madsen about Joseph, which I really liked. But I had always had the sense that um, Joseph was a little bit more complicated than that, I guess, to put it nicely. Mm-hmm. You know, but wasn't totally sure. So I get this book and I start reading the first part. Anyone that's read the first part. Pretty, it's dry, you know, because it's giving all the backstory to the Smith family and lo- losing their money and and all that and all that stuff. Um, and then and then Joseph starts becoming very interesting, you know. You get the you get the seer stones, you get the uh, the visits, and you get polygamy. You get a little bit of polyandry. You get the Kirtland failing of the Kirtland anti baking. Banking society, mm-hmm. Abu, and all this stuff, and also he became very—he was much more interesting uh, to me. I never took the approach. I've heard some people say, you know, when you you see Joseph that way, you see all the faults he had, and that it just kind of inspires me that God would work for someone. It wasn't doing that for me. It was just like this is some crazy stuff going on here, man. You know that I hadn't heard about, and I wasn't bothered that I hadn't heard about it. I just thought it was crazy stuff was all was it was it troubling to you at all uh, reading it in rough stone rolling or the, how did the, it make you feel the possibility of the teenage marriage to uh what's her name fanny with fanny uh, uh, yeah fanny alger there you go that bothered me um the curland bank anti-curland banking society kind of bothered me a little bit but I thought Bushman did a good job of putting that in some type of historical context. Now, granted, I haven't read this book for seven years, so I'm sure there's stuff that – and I, it was a book I underlined heavily. Um, I, I looked at his source material and kept notes of, of who his source material was. So I started learning about Michael Quinn, Todd Compton, 
people like that. And I, my idea was, well, this guy sounds really reliable, so his sources must be reliable as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I so I started keeping a list of those books, and then my library started expanding uh, quite tremendously. Um, that the uh, I remember the one thing I really really liked about Roughstone Rolling was when. He uh, was. He went from what I recall. He went through the different sections of the Doctrine and Covenants and went into like a very lengthy historical background to them. And I remember really, really enjoying that. And so when I've had siblings like Jonathan or Paul read it, I said, "You guys got to read the footnotes because you read it, and all of a sudden, like this paragraph, like he'll expand it for a few pages sometimes um, in the footnotes, and it's it's just amazing, you know, you know. And so that's that's how I took it. Now things were still going okay. I was. You know, Joseph and I were okay. He was just much more interesting, <laughs> you know, than normal. Uh, you know, the other thing that kind of bothered me was the the story that you always get with um, – oh, crap. Help me out. With the Nauvoo War – and excuse me, the Missouri War with the uh, Zions camp. Oh, okay. That, how that completely failed. You know, that was a complete flop. People died. Cholera. It was – you know, and, and the, the, the story that uh, – well, the 12 apostles came out of that. I was like, <laughs> yeah, but – the prophecy still failed, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I was like, yeah, but – so anyways, so everything was still good. So I move on. I, I, I get introduced at that point to Michael Quinn and uh, early Mormonism and the magical worldview, which once again was just something very interesting for me. It did nothing to shake my faith, and I really, really liked the book. What actually bothered me more than anything was looking at some of the apologetic responses to it, you know? And and like they just why did they have a problem with it? I don't understand. He might have he might have overstated some some influences on Joseph uh, from you know folk magic during the time. But I mean, I thought he did a really good job with it myself, and I really enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it so much. There's a part in there where he talks about Joseph's Jupiter talisman, and I actually went online to eBay and I bought two of those. Uh, <laughs> cool. They're they're I have them framed. Uh, in my in my in my den because I just thought that's just interesting Mormon history, right? And I thought he did a good job also of just kind of wrapping it up why we don't think that way anymore as Mormons and how that would be an insincere way to approach your religion now. Where for them it was very you know the idea of Christianity and magic just blended together quite seamlessly for them, but it, it no longer does. And I, I thought he did a good job with that. So everything was still okay. He was just, he was just kind of interesting. Okay. So after so after reading Bushman and reading Quinn, if you have a little faith meter, um, your needle didn't really move a whole lot. You just sort of developed a new um, almost a relationship or perspective with the, uh, the, 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 pers- the persona of Joseph Smith. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And especially with, with Quinn, my father, I can remember my father telling me about a seer stone and that Joseph had used it at one point for part of the Book of Mormon at least. And I'd read something similar to that on my mission. My parents had bought me the three-part Doctrine of Salvation, and he had – and Joseph Fielding Smith had mentioned it in there as well, although he didn't quite uh, tell it completely. Um, I don't, I'm not sure as in he was lying, uh, but he – I don't think – he's not a historian, you know, so he didn't – grasp everything that was what was going on with it but in, but i think you're right I, my faith meter didn't really change he was just he was much more complicated much more interesting and i started to understand that culture influences your relationship with god very much he speaks to you i think in 
when it, when scriptures say he speaks to you in, in your own tongue, I don't mean that God speaks to me in English, right? But that he speaks to me in the cult, in the cultural milieu in which I'm bathed. <laughs> right. In that, in that context. Right. Yeah, so it didn't, didn't do anything to bother me. Okay, now, cool. Todd Compton, that's another freaking story, man. <laughs> so yeah, Todd Compton, that's where things started to quickly fall apart for me, Micah. <laughs> um, so first of all, first of all, I, um, I think Todd Compton did a good job with his book, and I don't have any qualms for with his scholarship. I know there have been some Mormon apologetics that have kind of attacked it, but I think he did a good job. And of really course, did. you're referring to uh, oh, in Sacred sorry. Loneliness, right? In Sacred and Sacred Loneliness, which was the perfect name for that book. It really is. It really is. So the polygamy starts bothering me, not because Joseph married thirty wives, which is crazy in of itself, right? What bothered me was the deception that went on with he, between he and Emma, or I should just say with him, to, towards Emma. But um, That bothered me. The possibility that he married Fanny Alger bothered me more because Todd Compton explains that a little bit better. Um, um, this idea of, I think it was the someone's going to call me I think it was the Partridge sisters where Joseph had married them and then and then finally talks Emma into that it's an okay thing to be polygamous and you can pick my wives and so he picks them but he doesn't she doesn't know he's already married to them I think it's the Partridge sisters I could be wrong like that kind of stuff bothered me you know right and then and then came the polyandry and I was like oh crap man Say what? Now? It gets worse. <laughs> it's like you got to be kidding me, man. So you're marrying women that are already married. A lot of their husbands don't know. Some of them do know, which is even weirder. <laughs> you know what's going on here? Ugh. And it was just my mind was going to explode. Yeah. So how did you? I mean, how did you feel when you're reading this stuff? <sighs> It made me angry. It made me sick. Um, I love my wife dearly. I would never treat my wife the way that Joseph treated Emma. I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I could not lie to my wife like that. I just would never do it. Just wouldn't do it. Oh, it bothered. It bothered me to my core, right? Because I saw it. I I saw it, and I still see it. I'll be honest with you. I still see a lot of that as just morally objectively morally wrong what he was doing so why did why did it bother you so much well there's a couple of reasons i remember and i'm sure you were taught the same thing like the reason for polygamy was there was more men than more women than men right mm-hmm. which it just isn't true i mean that was an apologetic that was given back in the day and it's still used but it's just not true that's not true at all on any level it's not true in the way that people perceived it back then and it's not true based on the fact that Joseph was marrying women that were already married. Right. You know? And then it gets crazier, right? So you get these women that are married to Joseph. No one knows they're married. So they have might have a suitor, but they can't really accept his approaches, right? Because they're married to Joseph. So they're they're they are lonely. You know, that's why Compton's the book title is like Right, it's spot on, sacred loneliness. And it, it, yeah, it just bothered me. I just, 
I couldn't, I couldn't take it. And, I, and, and then I couldn't talk to anybody about it, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if I were to say this to average Joe at church, they would think I was reading an anti-Mormon book, right? But I wasn't. I was just reading a scholarly book. And there's no one I could talk to. I tried to talk to my wife, and she didn't want to hear anything about it. Not, you know, I never had the sense that, like, she was going to leave me or anything like that, you know, if I didn't stop reading this stuff or if I ever left the church that she would leave me. I never had that sense ever. But she just didn't want to hear about it. And I think her reaction is probably typical of many faithful LDS women in that Brigham Young practicing polygamy, yeah, that bothers us, but it's Brigham Young. And, but it's Joseph now? Yeah, that's, that's no good, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's worse yeah. When you, uh, when it's with Joseph. Yeah. So real quick, I, I, you know, a couple things you said stuck out to me. First of all, you talked about, you know, the assumption that, that somebody would have that what you were reading was anti. So what, what is anti and how is it different from, from Todd Compton's book in sacred loneliness or D Michael Quinn's book? Like what, uh, how do you make, how do you personally make that distinction? Yeah, that's a very good question because anti is a, a word that I think gets used a little bit too loosely. Yeah, it's a loaded it's a loaded term for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions to it. I, I, I think an anti book is written for the purpose of getting people out of the church, removing them. Overtly antagonistic towards either yeah. Mormonism in general or the church itself. Yeah, and I think that's a and I think usually if you when you read enough you start to get the sense of it. For example, I I bought a book. I was looking for a book about the book of Abraham. I wanted to see the the extant manuscripts and so I bought a book. And I'll tell you what, I was angry because it was freaking by an evangelical. I was like, ah, oh, and right off the bat I'm like, I know what this crap's going to be about. And I was angry at myself cuz I spent money on it. <laughs> You know, <laughs> did, did you know a lot of about Richard Bushman or Michael Quinn or Todd Compton before you started reading their books? No, I had never heard of Richard Bushman ever. Uh, Todd Compton, no. My father actually had two books by Michael Quinn, and they were both his bi- they were his biographies on um, uh, J. Reuben Clark. Okay. So when he died, when my father died, I I asked my mom if I could have those books, and they're my bookshelf. I just haven't read them yet. But yeah, so that's so uh, yeah, and the the whole September sixth thing with Michael Quinn, I didn't learn that till later. Right. Okay. So you didn't know about his background, and um, but then you know you got guys like Richard Bushman. I mean, he's obviously uh, very devout, former state president, state patriarch. Yeah. And then uh, Compton also very faithful, devout guy too. Yeah. So right. obviously they're not writing literature that's designed to cause people to question or, um, take people out of the church. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to, I was curious, uh, how, how, what specifically you felt was different about the literature you were reading as opposed to what, um, some LDS people would consider to be anti. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard line to, to see, but I, th- I think the more you read scholarly work, the, the, the more you, you, you can, you get a feel for so it. You get you get a, yeah. You get a you get a feel for it. And it becomes obvious that they're trying to 
to push push something out, you know, push people out. Okay. That kind of becomes becomes obvious. Um, before we before we uh, keep talking about, uh, you know, one thing I really want to talk about with you is you said how alone you felt. But before we go into that, I want to talk more about specifically why the the polygamy and polyandry was so bothersome to you. You mentioned that uh, one of the reasons was because sort of the uh, explanation that was given to you growing up was no longer sufficient of why polygamy was practiced and why it was necessary. Are there any other things about the polygamy and polyandry that were, that were troubling for you? Yeah. I, I didn't like, I didn't like all the, um, uh, the deceit, all the secretness of it, keeping it from Emma. Right. But why, why specifically was that troubling for your faith? Oh, cause Cause that's called lying, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, right. It's it's just lying. It's just, uh, so I guess what lying. I'm asking is, um, obviously if you found out that Mike and Nicolaisen was practicing polygamy and lying to his wife, you may think that I'm a pretty horrible person, but it probably yes. wouldn't affect your, oh. it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect your, uh, <laughs> your relationship to Mormonism or really it'd be probably something you forget about after a while. But yeah. so wh- why is it, why was it so hard for you to hear this stuff about Joseph? Well, cause it, well, cause it is Joseph, right? Joseph is the prophet of the restoration. And I, I, although I, I, by this time I did not hold him up on the pedestal that I had prior to reading Richard Bushman, I still had a certain expectation of of how he would of how he should act. Right. You know. And he failed miserably. Hmm. So I mean is that uh is that sort of the essence of it right there, do you think? Yeah. And it just it it just it bothered me like just on the level that you know, I just I don't understand how you could treat your wife that way, man. Hmm. I don't. And then then marrying women that are already married that's that's no good, man. <laughs> you know, and and I didn't have pro. I mean, this is gonna sound crazy, but you know, I think with marriage, uh, implicit with that is that there's a sexual dynamic with it, right? That there's a sexual relationship, and um, and we know that he did with some of his polygamous wives. And the jury's still out on his polyandrous wives, you know, right. as far as, uh, as far as that, you know, um, um, what's her face? Uh, Fon Brody, of course, thinks that he did, but it was based on just bad, bad history. But, um, yeah, so. Right. Just, and, and, you know, we, we know from how polygamy was practiced from, from that time forward that obviously a sexual relationship was, <laughs> was part of the, part of the equation. Yeah, yeah, because you know I've, I, you know I, I have very open discussions with people at at work about stuff, and there's a scrub tech one day, and she's talking, she she's watching what's it called, Sister Wise, I think it's called. And she's like, I love that show, and so we start talking about polygamy and its beginnings and stuff, and I was like, Yeah, Joseph had thirty wives, you know, over thirty wives. She's like. She looks at me and the surgeon looks at me. I'm like, yeah, crazy, right? (laughs) And I go, implicit in that, of course, is that he's having sex with all these women, but it turned out he isn't, you know, you know, we know that he did with some, but not all of them. And, you know, it, yeah, it just sounds, you know, know, when you actually hear 30 wives, that's just, it's a lot of women, man. (laughs) For sure. For sure. And, and, uh, yeah, so it, yeah, it just, 
it really, really bothered me. And it bothered me too. I, cause I, there, once again, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. No, no, no one, no one was reading this stuff. I, ah, I was all alone. You cool. know what? I, I wanted to hang on to my Mormonism, but it was, it was quickly s- slipping away, Micah. It was quickly slipping away. Okay. So, so yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so in what way did you feel alone or sort of, uh, like what, 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 what specifically were you feeling at the time? Yeah, there's just the, a sense of betrayal. I think, uh, there is a sense of betrayal uh, from whom, from Joseph, not from the church. I never, I never felt that things were hidden from me, which you, which you often hear from people, right, that they have left over historical issues. I never felt that betrayal, but I understand why you would. I really do. I never felt that. I just was like, oh, no, you can't act this way as a, I don't care, you know, you can't, you can't treat, you can't act this way. And so things just quickly start, start falling apart because of that, because I had no one to talk to, no one to talk to. My, my sweet wife, she, she wouldn't listen. I knew nobody else I was reading this stuff, you know, and, um, and even ever, if I, did you ever try to talk to people like in your ward or any friends or other family members besides your wife? Now I have a, a, a brother-in-law, uh, who's from Ecuador. Very, very bright man. Um, he actually just got into the BYU business college there. Um, but anyways, he had read, um, Ruffstone ruling. He was aware of, and sacred loneliness, but I don't think he had read it at that time, and I could talk to him a little bit about it. But he lives in Utah, you know, and so it's not like I could constantly talk to him about it. And it was a book that I would read and I would put down, and I'd have to take a break from, pick it up and read it again, hmm. put it down, just kind of process it. And I remember even things that seemed completely benign about polygamy, I might bring up with someone, and they'd be like, that's not true. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I can't talk to you about the rest of the wackiness. <laughs> right, that's, you know? the, that's just the icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't, know what's, you don't know what's going on, man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay. And I, I never had the sense, though, that like he was – like Fun Brody has that, that he was um, – just want to have lots of sex. You know? I, I never got that sense at all. But so. Just, yeah. So did you ever have any like visceral reactions from people? I mean, you mentioned sort of on a like more casually like, oh, that's not true. But did you ever have, um, you know, for example, some somebody accuse you of reading anti or do you ever have any like bad run ins with people like that? Mm. I no. Cause I, 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 is because you were smart enough not to, to talk to anybody about it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you said it, but yeah, I would like kind of put a feeler out there. And if I got snapped at, I was like, all right, well, we're not going to talk about that with you then, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's obviously uh, something that many, many people experience when they sort of first, uh, uh, become exposed to troubling issues in Mormonism, whether it's uh, historical issues like uh, polygamy and polyandry or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, you know, whether they they find out through experience that they that they can't talk to people, or if they just already inherently perceive that fact. And so, um, you know, your reaction to that is you felt you felt very uh, isolated. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, at one point I remember my wife going, why do you read that stuff? And I said, because it's, it's our history, you know? <laughs> it's our, why, it's why, history. Is, why is history important? That's a good question. I've heard people say, and I understand where they're coming from, that Mormonism does not have a theology, that it only has a history. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but I, I kind of understand what they're saying. You know, Mormonism doesn't have um, um, like a, a creeds. Yeah, yeah, creeds. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a good word. We don't we don't have creeds. Even even you know the twelve articles of faith really aren't a creed, right? Per se. Um, and so um, so we have history, and from history comes our theology. Right, so we have to get our history right. So, for example, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical event with theological implications. Mm -hmm. The priesthood restoration was a historical event with theological implications. So we we got to get the history, we got to get the history right for our theology to be to be right. I would say, although. Although there is an argument that the give that uh, Terrell and Fiona Gibbons give that you know the theology and history are, are two separate things, and that's why they're talking so much about theology, Mormon theology, which I, I understand I understand their their point of view as well. But yeah, you got to get the you got to get the history right, and and um, and I don't I don't know what it, I don't know why I I didn't just like leave that book alone, but I is like um, I get. I just finished, I felt I had to read it. Maybe I was, maybe I was thinking there would be a, a some type of resolution or something. I don't know. Hmm. I don't well, let know. me let me sort of uh, I don't want to say devil's advocate, but let me kind of throw some some questions at you because I think that there can be a lot of assumptions uh, that are made about somebody who who chooses to read material like this. Um, the first one is um, that that this is all sort of the influence of Satan, um, oh. <laughs> that, that you're, you know, the reason you can't put it down is, you know, it's almost like pornography where uh -huh. you're, you're, you're hooked on it. And because, because Satan knows that if he can get you to read this stuff, it'll cause you to question. It'll eventually cause you to fall. Um, that, that may sound, uh, crazy to some people, but I know that, uh, that is a, a a very common assumption amongst a lot of mainstream LDS folks. So what is your reaction to that? That sounds crazy to me um, for a couple of reasons. One, because when I pick up a scholarly book, I'm very, I'm very careful with what I pick up. And once again, with Todd Compton, for example, the fact that he was relied on so heavily by Richard Bushman gave me the okay that this was good scholarship. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, so that's that's how it's just scholarship, you know. It's it's not um, Grant Palmer, you know, which maybe people won't like me saying that, but <laughs> as much. But but you know, right? You're saying you're talking about intentions and in a way credentials, not just uh, academic credentials, but um, you know, <laughs> Mormon credentials. Like Richard Bushman has a lot of street cred because he's. Uh, He's so in and has he has all the right pedigree associated with his uh, with his scholarship, and so so anyway so sorry I was sort of trying to elaborate on what you were saying there but keep keep going. No, so I, I think that's it. That's it. But regardless, even there's good scholarship 
by non-LDS people, you know, um, like uh, Flanders on his uh, um, not, uh, book on Nauvoo. I, I think he, I think he actually was, you know, at the time RLDS, and that book was was good for me. And then you have the new Brigham Young book, you know, that just came out. And so I I, I think that um, true scholars aren't concerned about proving Joe Smith a prophet or not. They're just, they, they just like history, right? right. <laughs> what so is. what if, um, how would you react to somebody saying something to the effect of, well, you know, nobody really knows what happened and we weren't there and we, we know it's true. Um, we know Joseph Smith is a prophet mm-hmm. and we know, that he was obviously a good person um, because because that's that's what we're taught. And so, what's the what's the benefit of of exposing yourself to stuff that changes that image when it can have such uh, drastic consequences, eternal consequences? They would argue. Yeah, so I think that's a fair question. Um, two answers to that. First is um, I like what Philip Barlow said once. He said that um, doubt is not the opposite of faith. A uh, how do you say it? A um, sanitized ostrich-like. Knowledge is the opposite of faith. So when your faith is so rigid and you bury your head in the sand, that's that's to me is a is a problem. So that that's it first. Um, second of all, is kind of the approach that Michael Quinn used to take when he was a member of the church, and that is people are hearing this from non-faithful sources. Let's hear from a faithful source and where it's in some type of context, you know. And so that's also my view. And that's why I continue to read um, because I'm Mormon because uh, I like reading this stuff. And I want to be able to give a real answer to someone when they ask me a question, whether it be one of my young men, whether it be one of my daughters, whether it be a, a, you know, a family member. They deserve a good answer from me and I feel obligated to provide them the correct answer. Right. And that, um, that also plays into the, the concept of inoculation that, that we'll, we'll get to later. But, um, you know, I agree with you. So, so anyway, going back to sort of the narrative of what you're Mm -hmm. going through at this time. So you're feeling very alone because you can't talk to anybody. Um, yeah. you're feeling probably lost, I'm guessing, because a lot of your, your bearings have sort of been, uh, shaken up by, you know, cause Joseph Smith, he's, uh, he is a persona that is an integral part of, of Mormonism. And if, oh yeah. And so, so anyway, so tell us, tell us what happens after that. Well, I remember I'm, I'm struggling with this stuff. Um, trying to work it out. Um, I remember very distinctly getting ready for the day. I'm not sure if it was a Sunday or, or, or work day. 
And uh, I, uh, my wife's like, I, I, Mike, don't talk to me about this. And I go, Kathy, I'm thinking about leaving the church. And I meant that sincerely. I, don't, I didn't think I could deal with this anymore. And I didn't say that to try to manipulate my wife, to try to listen to me. I was like, I had hit rock bottom. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I think it startled her, and she started, she started to listen. And there's something cathartic about just talking to somebody about it, right? Just someone listening about it. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was good for me. It, it was good for my heart, and it also taught me something about the importance of just listening to people, <laughs> you know? Not necessarily even providing them an answer for something, but just being willing to listen to someone's issues and struggles. You know, there's 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 something very 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 powerful in that. So that started to help a little bit. The other thing that helped was um, as I as I kind of wrestled with these things is that. Um, I think Todd Compton's explanation is plausible to me. When I look at um, Joseph Smith as a community builder, you know, you have Kirtland, you got Nauvoo, you got the uh, United Order and whatnot. And Joseph was very much in building communities. And it's, it's, it seemed to me, and it still seems to me, that Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith was taking that idea of community and extending it into the afterlife and, and forming these dynastic, what, Todd Compton calls it these dynastic relationships where everyone's linked to everybody, right? And eventually we're all linked, linked to God. Um, that, I think, speaks truth to me. And as I kind of matured a little bit, I just came to the realization, I think, that that's what he was doing, but things got awfully sideways there. I honestly believe that Joseph Smith believe that he was commanded by God to do these things. Um, but I have a hard time believing that he was commanded, you know, to take this wife and that wife, you know, and not tell Emma about it and marry women that were already married and, and all the other nonsense that went on about it. You know, the other thing I remember, the other thing that really bothered me was, I think, was he in Carthage jail? I think it was where he sent the letter to one of his polygamous, younger polygamous wives to come visit him, but didn't send one to Emma. Oh, man. Seriously, man? <laughs> that's no good. That's pretty bad, yeah. Oh, that's messed up, man. <laughs> so, um, so another question I want to ask is yeah. um, to come to terms with the idea that Joseph Smith was perhaps wrong. And the fact that concepts like plural marriage are, you know, they're written into our scriptures. It, it all, if, if you're able to, to make that step to say that, yeah, you know what? Joe Smith was just wrong. You know, he, he got that part wrong or he got parts of it wrong. There are obvious ram implications and ramifications with coming to terms with that. And what I'm, what I'm talking about there is the, um, ideas that, Basically, the idea that the prophet can never lead the church astray, and so, because because that's that's what I think is uh, kind of the hangup that people have with with admitting that that a, that a guy like Joseph Smith was perhaps in error at times is it it conflicts with that other paradigm, mm-hmm. 
So is that something that you grappled with? Yeah, and I, I'll be honest, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I don't. I don't have a good answer for Section 132 because it's canonized scripture, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to the King Follett sermon, which is not canonized. So it's easier for us to distance ourselves from the King Follett sermon if we if if we choose to do so, than it is to um, distance ourselves from Section 132. Gotcha. Okay. It's, it's hard. Well, I'm not saying I, you have to give an answer to that or that you <laughs> – I mean, you're obviously a very smart, intelligent guy, Mike, but I don't expect you to have all the answers to give us. But uh, I was just curious if that's something that you uh, had grappled with or had a resolution with. I don't, and that's – it's a problem. It is. I mean, when you have Section 132 telling, you know, Emma shall be destroyed and stuff like that, I'm not, I'm not so okay with that. <laughs> gotcha. You know? Okay. I'm not, and and I think I think when you look at you know Doctrine and Covenants is is the new is the curriculum for this upcoming year. We will completely skip all that stuff in one section one thirty two, right? <laughs> right. Well, we'll it'll, it'll it'll just and I would I would be so bold as to say that most members of the LDS Church have not read section one thirty two from beginning to end. Yeah, I I would not be surprised. Yeah. 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 Okay, so sorry that was me interrupting your story again. So, no, uh, no, no, so no, continue. No. Tell tell us what's uh, so you you sort of come in a way you you almost reconcile um, that yeah, that now, issue. Now, now, I don't want anyone to think that this like came all of a sudden. This took years, man. Yeah. So so two thousand five <laughs> is when you read uh, Rough Stone Rolling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So where where are we at now? Like, when did you start reading Todd Compton? When did you? Like what? What uh, I think the time periods are important to yeah. to grasp for everybody. So 2005 would have been Rustle and Rolling. I think I wrote, read Michael Quinn after that, and then I did I did Todd Compton probably 06, 07. And you know that's a fat book. That thing's huge, right? Mm-hmm. Thing is enormous. So it and not only is it big, it took me a long time to read it because I had to keep on putting it down because it bothered me so much, and then and stuff. And along the lines, I start. You know, my my um, I'm keeping notes on him, and I'm you know my my library is ever expanding, and um, somewhere along the line, I'm 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 at Barnes and Noble, and I go to the religion section, and there's this awesome looking book. It has this picture of David O. McKay on it. It's a beautiful hardback book, and it says David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. I'm like, this book sounds freaking awesome, <laughs> right? I mean, what a cool title, and I had always had the sense. Ever since I was young, that something had changed around there because all of a sudden the prophets don't have beards anymore, right? Right. Yeah, he's the first guy with the with the clean shaven look. Yeah, the clean shaven look. You know, so I I picked that up, and uh, you know, Gregory Prince had written that book. I had never heard of him, and I started reading that book while I'm while I'm dealing with all this other crap, right? And uh, Greg Prince did a great job in showing the the humanity of David O. McKay without like taking away from his prophetic role. And he also did something else. You got a, a sense from that book, at least I did, of the weight of leading such a, a large organization and how, how much heavier that is when people are freaking screwing around and doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing, right? <laughs> right. So, so I think specifically of uh, of um, the whole issue with Mormon doctrine and Bruce R. McConkie. What a, you know, what a cluster of problems that caused for President McKay, and then when Joseph Fielding Smith waits 
until Talmadge is dead and waits till B.H. Roberts is dead and waits till Wisso's dead to publish his anti-evolution book, you know, and, and the problems that that caused, for, caused him. And so I got this very sense of how difficult it is to manage a large institution and the expectations that come with that, you know, and what people ex- expect out of you. And it humanized things a lot. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, it it, it kind of softened things a little bit, I guess, for me and, and, and some some sense towards Joe Smith. And I can't explain why that was, but I really, really liked that book. And then he had written a book earlier than that about the priesthood that I picked up and I read. And I really liked that because he gave a, a different model of how the priesthood restoration occurred. And I really enjoyed that. And then somewhere along the line um, – the PBS had that special on the Mormons, right? Mm-hmm. I recorded it. I thought this stuff, this is great. I've been reading, and I tell my dad-in-law about it. He's like, "Yeah, Mike, this is all the stuff you've been telling me for the last, you know, couple of years." But I start keeping notes again, and I, I write down the name Kathleen Flake, and I and I see Greg Prince is on there, and I write down the name Terrell Givens, and Sarah Berger Gordon Smith, and I, and I just I decide to look who these people up, and I see that they've written books, so I pick up Kathleen Flake's book. Which uh, which is about the um, the Reed Smoot trials, mm-hmm. which what's again about polygamy, and I start to kind of understand things a little bit better, you know, and also the importance of the first vision uh, as she presents it, and then um, Terrell Givens, uh, I pick up I pick up by the hand of Mormon, and I'm like this stuff. I mean that's a he writes usually he writes the the book that he and his wife did re, is a little bit more readable. Oh, I don't want to say his other stuff isn't readable. It's not as dense. His, his other stuff, I would have to like be in the den, door closed, and I have to just concentrate because he, he's so dense with what he says, but it's so powerful and it moves me. And then uh, you know, and and I and then um and I this lady Sarah Berenger Gordon Smith, she's not an LDS, but she talked about um uh, polygamy and how polygamy changed the constitution and things like that. It was very very interesting. So all this is kind of floating around where I'm like trying to see if I can you know reorganize my my belief and so there's just a lot a lot going on a lot going on come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith to discuss this podcast check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org the music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
Seal it, seal it for.